How does the law impact and shape the way we live? Welcome to the Law and Life podcast brought to you by TGB Lawyers. Welcome to the Law and Life podcast with Tyndall Gas Bentley Lawyers. Uh, today we have with us TGB partner and military claims specialist Tim White. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. How are you, Michael? Very well, thanks, mate. And uh, we also have a very special guest with us today in clinical psychiatrist, Dr. Nick Ford. How are you, Nick? I'm well, and thank you for asking me to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, So today we are talking about post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD in members of the Australian Defence Force. Uh, It's an issue very much in the minds of the public right now. Uh, The welfare of our military veterans is something I think most Aussies take very seriously. Um, And it's an area that you both offer expertise in. Um, Tim, you've helped many, many former and current defence members with their claims. Uh, And Nick, you are a PTSD treatment specialist as well as a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Adelaide. Um, And before we go on, I should just note that um, Nick has very kindly uh, donated his time to us today. Um, He's here purely in an advisory role, um, but uh, is uh, in no way affiliated with the firm and is simply here to um, offer some advice and, uh, you know, have a general chat about this very important issue. Um, So to start off... Nick, uh, could you perhaps give us an idea of what PTSD is? You know, you're sort of just a general ballpark of, of what this is and how it affects veterans. Look, there, there are diagnostic issues and the manual that uh, psychiatrists use is the DSM and that defines a particular condition called post-traumatic stress disorder. The reality is that exposure to overwhelming and life-threatening traumatic events is known to cause all kinds of psychiatric conditions, of which PTSD is one. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder itself is a constellation of symptoms where the individual is trying to make sense of what has occurred. They'll try and suppress memories and recollections of that event, and then they'll be overwhelmed by recollections of the experience, some of which can seem so lifelike that it's like a fully sense around movie. In an attempt to avoid that, the patient or the person will often begin to increasingly restrict their life such that they at worst become housebound and separated from connections with all sorts of, with, with all uh, loved ones and other individuals. Right. So, you know, you, you mentioned there, you know, it's, it's, it's things that, you know, people have seen and, and experienced. So I take it there would be also some common triggers and, and symptoms around PTSD? The um, psychiatric conditions arising from major conflict and disasters have been described for two and a half to 3,000 years. The earliest uh, account that I have is from the Battle of Marathon, where a fellow developed an hysterical blindness following the Persian invasion. It's been described in African explorers. Uh, the explorer John Speak, who was a very brave individual, uh, wound up coming to a very tragic end after a long time of dealing with PTSD symptoms uh, and depression. The kind of experiences that uh, trigger it, the, the early descriptions were related to the experience of fear, and often fear is an accompaniment of um, traumatic and dangerous events. I guess the commonest Emotional experiences come up in the population that I treat, and maybe it's a mark of the calibre of our Australian troops, is not fear. It's usually helplessness, disgust and horror at the things that they see. And it may be a, a characteristic of the types of wars that we're involved in now, which are largely insurgency wars, where there's a civilian population, population in which the insurgents are operating. 
So, given that you know you've just mentioned there that you know we have uh, you know perhaps new types of conflicts um, that we're involved in as well, would you equate you know the different types of conflicts that we're involved in with also a, a rise in PTSD or at least you know recognised and diagnosed PTSD cases in former defence personnel? Yeah, I'm not sure there's a rise in PTSD. Um, there is certainly an increased. Um, awareness of it and possibly even diagnosis. The reality is uh, that all military formations over time have suffered uh, rates of psychiatric breakdown. Um, and that's ranged from, you know, 10% in British uh, forces in North Africa during World War II to 40 to 50% um, in American forces during Operation Torch. The argument there was that perhaps the uh, withdrawal criteria were too, uh, too loose. The other argument is the American forces met General Rommel for the first time and didn't like it very much. Um, but they've always been disabled by this and there's always been a huge psychiatric casualty rate after wars. Uh, we tend to forget that as populations, but if we look at the literature after World War I, there were huge rates of what was then called shell shock, which was a form of PTSD, and uh, psychiatry and modern medicine got a lot of experience and a lot of data out of that. If we look at World War II, there were vast numbers of individuals hospitalised um, uh, and treated uh, for PTSD after that. And indeed, modern psychiatry got a lot of uh, importance uh, from that. You know, we, we see it in, uh, in, in personal experience. You know, my own experience was my, uh, my grandfather who served with the British Army, uh, who was one of the guys who opened up uh, a German concentration camp. It was something that simply wasn't talked about in the family. Wow, so there's, I guess, you know, greater awareness now, but, you know, at the time, sort of, um, there was... Just, um, a suppression of the issues as well, it sounds like, as well. I think there's were, there was an acceptance of um, some of those issues um, in the communities that the individuals came from. Look, I was recently in the um, Outer Hebrides, and um, uh, which is a part of Scotland, and um, one of the um, uh, things that I found in the museum, if I can just read from this, was um, an account of Angus. Now, Angus served in the Lovat Scouts during World War II. It was a British vaguely special forces unit. He returned to the Outer Hebrides, he was a farmer, and as they put it, he was never the same again. He couldn't look after himself, he couldn't do anything, he reverted to patterns of behaviour that he'd shown as a child, and uh, poor Angus spent the rest of his life in hospital. Except there's one story where uh, the, the uh, community was confronted by an enraged bull, and Angus stepped uh, out of the hospital and uh, calmed the bull, quietened the bull, and then went back to being quietly solitary. Uh, a tragic story, but almost mm. certain what uh, what had happened to Angus. The community accepted that and thought that he'd changed. So, Tim, uh, you deal with you know, a lot of uh, defence claims uh, here yeah. at, at the firm. So when, when new clients come in and, and, and see you, would you say that PTSD is a, a common trait shared by many of your clients? Yes, it's, it's a common condition. I suppose PTSD or other psychological conditions certainly are present in a lot of the um, current serving ADF members or veterans uh, that we assist. So, it, yeah, it often does go hand in hand with other physical injuries. As Nick was just saying, it's always difficult statistically to say, is it on the rise in comparison with other conflicts, the Vietnam War, World War II, or, or the numerous other um, wars or conflicts that we've been involved in. But I've in, in my 
uh, experience anecdotally, I think it seems to be uh, increasing. Whether that's statistically true across Australia, uh, difficult to say, uh, but a lot of the clients that we assist, it certainly is an issue. Sure. So when they come to you for you know, advice and, and, and help, um, uh, many defence members, you know, are they already getting treatment or is it also something that you find that you, know, you perhaps need to you know, um, become a, a bridge to you know, help them find that treatment as, as well, be that you know, through the DVA or, or independently? Mm. I think uh, probably a mixture of sure. circumstances. Certainly some people are better informed in the sense that they have already initiated that and are receiving expert treatment from psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, and, uh, and receiving uh, very good help uh, that's available here, certainly in South Australia and, and, and other states. But, uh, but you certainly see people that have been, I'll use the phrase, off in the wilderness uh, for a long period of time, unfortunately, sometimes months, sometimes years, and they haven't, uh, for a number of reasons, been able to access help. So um, having uh, experience in assisting people with DVA claims and getting those uh, conditions accepted certainly does assist the member with then accessing treatment for PTSD or other conditions. Sure. So uh, is there a sort of a, a common road that people take to, to access treatment? Um, is, it, is it easy to get this treatment? Um, do they have to sort of go through a few hurdles of, of um, mm. diagnosis. This would be a question for, for mm. the both of you, really. Um, you know, how do they knock on that door? And then you know, how many doors do they have to knock on before mm. they can actually get mm. some treatment? It, I'll, I'll just make a brief comment on it but, and defer to, to Nick. But the DVA has a, a non-liability uh, scheme, which basically means that for certain uh, condition, medical conditions, psychological conditions, uh, they can access medical treatment without the condition being accepted as being military caused. The majority of uh, physical or psychological conditions, though, have to be accepted as being military caused for the DVA to pay for that treatment. So it can be difficult once a person's left the military uh, to access treatment uh, and have it paid for. Uh, but there are ways around that uh, in certain circumstances. Yeah, the introduction of the non-liability clause by DVA has actually been quite helpful in the sense that treatment uh, is going to be paid for. Although, to be frank, the way the medical profession often operates is, um, we, is most of, a lot of us are not really that fussed about getting paid in a timely fashion. I hate to say that, but uh, don't let it out. Um, <laughs> But the the other issue is knowing which door to uh, to go to, um, and having access to people who um, are interested and have some experience that can be a tricky one. The other problem that comes up is that often the guys and girls are sitting on memories that are, are quite frankly horrific, and one of the things they're frightened of is they're going to roll up to somebody and be asked to talk about it again. Mm. Um, 
And in fact, one of my common introductory lines is, look, I'm not going to ask you and talk to you about what you saw over there. It's not that I'm not interested, but I bet you've told lots of people. And you can see the sigh of relief um, happening uh, in, in that first consultation. Now, eventually, we are going to need to return to those topics as part of the treatment, but not initially. So there's that barrier. There's fear. There's the fear of cost. There's the, the access. And sometimes the guys will talk to somebody who seems dismissive or not interested, and therefore they might, may not try again. There's a plethora of veterans groups and helping groups around the place, but uh, sometimes they have a specialist skill and they may not be able to link up to other services, and so the veteran finds himself in a bit of a blind alley. Um, the other issue is dealing with DVA. Now, DVA has a lot of very fine individuals working with it as with its individuals, but their interface is quite opaque, and I made comment about this in the Senate inquiry last year. It can be quite challenging for the guys to get through. I know there's a lot of motivation to try and move that. Um, there are also complicated legal issues, um, and we do ha have to get uh, lawyers involved, and they can ex be extraordinarily helpful. I guess one of the really important things that I, I think uh, needs to be highlighted is that the professionals involved, doctors, physiotherapists, surgeons, lawyers, all need to be working as a team and all need to be communicating with each other uh, for things to happen promptly uh, and, in, and in real time. Sure. It's, it's, um, it's a really interesting point that you make there, which I think you know some people can tend to overlook, which is the need for a, a cohesive sort of team approach um, to not just you know look at the legal side of uh, these people's issues, but also their health side as well. Um, you know, Tim, I think you and I have talked about that before, and you've always found that you know some of the the best results that you've got for clients is when you've taken that two sides of the coin sort of mm, approach. Absolutely, no, it's a good point, and the. I was about to say another aspect of assisting these clients is that PTSD inherently makes a person not want to do something in the sense of that's a legal issue, it's yep. confronting, I'll put that away uh, in the bottom drawer and I won't access, uh, I don't want to think about it or deal with that. So, yes, inherently you find uh, it's difficult to engage with the client uh, and progress things. So, the help of a psychiatrist, um, the GP or other people is hugely beneficial uh, with helping work through the legal issues as well. Uh, now, something that um, was touched on just before was, you know, the, I guess, you know, technical and at times sort of opaque process um, that, that uh, you know, can occur with these claims. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, something which, you know, can be common to many claims is the issue of um, SOPs. Now, you know, perhaps, um, you know, for our listeners, um, Tim, uh, you could give us an idea of, you know, what SOPs are, some of the pitfalls around them, um, you know, and, and just a bit of a, a broad brush um, explanation of what they are. Sure. So, depending on the time of service uh, that a member, ADF members, undertaken, the majority of the time, uh, a statement of principle or SOP will apply to the condition that they're claiming for. Uh, and so specifically with PTSD, again, it depends where they have served or where the uh, stressor that they've experienced has arisen, whether it's basically occurred in Australia or uh, while serving overseas, that will determine firstly which uh, statement of principle applies. But yes, they are... Um, a very important document with any ADF member making a uh, claim for a military injury. 
and you have to fulfill them. So if you can't fulfill the criteria set out by the SOP, then your uh, condition usually, uh, if not always, will be rejected and not accepted as being a military-caused condition. So the SOPs are extremely important, and specifically for PTSD, um, the criteria to be met uh, with the SOP is um, a high threshold. So by that I mean the event or events that have to have occurred and the member's response to those, to that event or events needs to be uh, very considerable. And um, the psychiatrist plays a very important role in firstly diagnosing the condition and then identifying the stressor or stressors that have occurred to uh, give rise to that condition. Um, so I think in a nutshell, um, you just can't overstate the importance of the SOP from a legal perspective and in terms of the member being aware of what the criteria is and working with a, a lawyer if necessary and their treating uh, practitioner uh, about what that criteria is, is very important. So when we say high threshold, you know, does that literally mean, you know, there is, you have to have proved that you've experienced a great amount of trauma to be successful in accessing, uh, you know, a successful claim or, or treatment? Is, is that essentially what that means? Exactly. So the, there's a category 1A, a category 1B stressor set out in the PTSD SOP and uh, I won't go through it in detail because it is very complex and uh, not easy to always explain, but essentially there needs to be a life-threatening event uh, is the uh, typical phrase used for the uh, stressor in the SOP for PTSD. Now, we've run a number of cases. One we took to the full federal court uh, that we were successful with for, with a Navy veteran and uh, one of the outcomes of that decision was that you could have the subjective experience of the veteran. Uh, that was a very relevant consideration in determining if they'd experienced um, the necessary stressor. So you could look at an event and a person might say, well, objectively, that's not life-threatening. But what the court basically said was, well, <coughs> that's not the test necessarily. You have to consider the subjective response of that veteran in those circumstances. And depending what that veteran perceived in those circumstances, that could be a life-threatening event. So it was a very important case and it's a very useful mm. case for, that uh, ADF members and veterans need to be aware of that when viewing uh, an event objectively, uh, that's, not the, the, that's not the sole test to, to determine if a person's experienced a necessary stress or subjective aspects can be taken into account. We'll be back to this discussion in just a moment. Do you need legal advice? TGB is a highly respected Australian law firm that can help you with most legal issues, including injury compensation, workplace issues, estate planning, criminal matters, as well as business and property. TGB's clients are diverse, including families, employees, businesses and associations. 
To get the right advice, visit tgb.com.au to arrange an appointment at your nearest office. So, Nick, um, right before we, we came on air, we were also discussing, um, you know, the idea around, you know, not just PTSD, but, you know, trauma in a, in a greater general sense. Um, and I found your, your comments on it incredibly interesting. Um, you know, so just for our, our listeners, you know, perhaps we could just, you know, revisit that um, in terms of, you know, PTSD, you know, is, you know, n- not this sort of one encompassing, one size fits all sort of, diagnosis there are many other diagnoses as well and other issues around that but then how are they being treated as adequately as ptsd are they being accepted as readily as ptsd um you know should there be a change in the approach to you know uh, mental health and, and trauma um amongst uh former and current defense personnel yeah look that that is a really good question and gets into a lot of issues about our understanding of neuroscience and how the brain operates and how it responds to all manner of things and the diagnostic and statistical manual which generated the term PTSD is a really inadequate piece of work um the reality is that after a traumatic event uh, an event in which there's something really horrific and there are overwhelming aspects of fear and disgust and horror all kinds of psychiatric conditions can develop, of which PTSD is one and by no means the common, commonest. Uh, depression's actually the commonest. But those conditions have all a common underlying uh, thread in the same way that the tuberculosis is due to infection with the bacteria, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It usually causes a pneumonia. But in medicine, tuberculosis is called the the great imitator because it can present with any kind of way. It can present with arthritis, it can present with a brain abscess, it can present with pneumonia. And so exposure to trauma can present in all kinds of uh, aberrant and disturbed uh, behaviour. The thing about it, however, is the treatment methods are pretty much the same. If we know we have a tuberculosis bacteria, we're going to hit it with a particular set of treatments. If we know that we have trauma exposure as a cause of the individual's suffering, we're going to hit it with a pretty similar bunch of treatments. One of the problems that comes out in the guidelines for for the treatment of uh, trauma, PTSD, is that it says, the research says, well, we're just going to use this particular form of trauma. You have to use exposure therapy, let's say, and if that doesn't work, maybe you'll trickle in a little bit of an antidepressant and that will be the way that things should go. There is a whole bunch of problems with the research methodology that's largely uh, based on single-episode trauma. Um, All Vietnam veterans who at the time they were studied were in their 50s and 60s. The reality is when we're dealing with service people, we're dealing with very often a very fit, slightly above average intelligence group of individuals who have been repeatedly traumatised. They've seen a number of um, issues in one deployment. The majority of the people that I see have uh, served for uh, overseas at least two or three occasions. Um, And there are issues with those uh, deployments that often people aren't aware of unless you ask. For example, a lot of our guys went to Bandarache now. That may not have been considered by them to be a traumatic deployment, but you know, without being a little bit 
were a little bit horrific about that. One of the overwhelming experiences of Banda Arche was the smell of rotting bodies. Uh, and that really stays with some of the guys. So we're dealing with multiple episodes of uh, trauma and they can present in all kinds of ways. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is one of those ways. And unfortunately, a lot of the, serv- the, the, the services are geared around you have to have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And sometimes an individual, uh, a soldier can feel, well, the doctor hasn't diagnosed me with PTSD. Maybe he's not taking me seriously. Um, and that can be a sticking point in a rapport. And, and I've had those discussions from time to time. I think we probably need to uh, work toward different diagnostic criteria, and we are, and I could go on and probably bore you about the thing called the RDOC, which is a really good system. Um but uh, I think we, we have trauma-related pathology and, of course, the other issue that we, we see is not only we're dealing with insurgencies, which is a slightly different form of warfare, but we're also deploying women a lot overseas. Now, women have um, a different set of issues, um, sometimes a different set of experiences. And, of course, one of the, the two, two things that come up particularly is often they're leaving uh, children behind uh, and that can be tricky. The other is, and it's a bit harsh to mention this, but it's a reality, is the proportion of sexual violence that they witness overseas because sexual violence is used in these types of wars as a way of intimidating and harassing a civilian population. That's pretty ugly as well. I was just going to ask, Nick, about um, other conditions that you touched on there, like alcohol alcohol abuse, alcohol dependence, uh, uh, adjustment disorder, you touched on depression. That They are presumably other conditions that you see arise along with PTSD? Yeah, look, um, absolutely. And I think the substance abuse one is a really big one. We talked about avoidance, so the individual shuts themselves and their experience down by avoiding issues. Alcohol is a way of shutting down experience. And, of course, it assumes a life of its own and becomes quite debilitating. Um, you know, it's a, it's a curious thing that uh, we, we see alcohol abuse in this country. I was uh, working in Thailand about 30 years ago, uh, and the population I was dealing with experienced a fair bit of suffering. Alcohol wasn't a part of their culture, but opium was. And so there was a lot of opium addiction in the ca- in the camp because opium was available uh, you know, as opposed to heroin. Substance abuse comes up. Look, another issue that comes up, I think, with, with our soldiers, um, you know, particularly infantry, is these guys are carrying around 40 to 60 kilograms. Um, unsurprisingly, a lot of them have back injuries and knee injuries, and there's a need to morph uh, – the, the, to – get their physical care sorted out. Um, I was talking to a colleague this morning about a, a couple of uh, guys that you know recently been involved in. I was lucky enough to have access to a, a very good musculoskeletal physician. We had these fellows in hospital. The musculoskeletal physician came in. We got a whole bunch of imaging done. We had a whole bunch of assessments done. So at the end, the, the fellows popped out with um, some recommendations, an idea of where their pain was coming from and some treatment for their mental health conditions. And these two were, were interfacing. One of the problems you see with pain, of course, is there's a tendency to just give people opiates, your endones and oxycodones and so on and so forth. Yeah, those drugs will suppress pain, um, but after a year we find that such individuals, they don't have a lot of pain, but they're also not engaging in life. They're usually just sitting in front of the TV in a bit of a stupor. I, uh, and I, I think in medicine we're getting an appreciation of the hazards of using opiates randomly for pain. Uh, just to you know, sort of expand on uh, you know the treatment 
um, which you touched on, Nick. Um, you know, what else can you know? I, I guess we, we we say veterans and and, and current serving members, but you know, uh, at some point they also become patients as well. Um, what can they do outside of formal treatment to help themselves on the road to recovery? Um, yeah, is meditation and mindfulness an option? It, it may not be a, a cure-all, but it may certainly help. Um, and I only mention this because um, I was having a look at a study you recently conducted um, around a concept called acceptance and commitment therapy, and that looks very interesting. Um, perhaps you could uh, just you know, give a bit of a definition and idea for our listeners of, of what that's all about and, and how it could actually uh, help as part of, I guess, a, a, a therapy strategy. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of things that patients can do to uh, to help themselves. And one of the things that I'm, I'm really keen on is giving a patient tools and encouraging them to go off and do stuff. Um, it's not just us treating the patient. The patient's got to be a participant participant in that. Acceptance, commitment, therapy and mindfulness really is a bit of a, um, a bias of mine. Um, the brain operates in particular ways and one of the things that's been found is that there's a part of the brain which is inward focused and it tends to create problems. So the, the idea is to create a state of mind where an individual begins to experience an emotion like they might a, a, a physical sensation. They can look at that emotion, they can choose to engage with it, and this is a lot harder to do than it sounds, um, and follow it through, or they can choose to let that emotion pass. The other component of that is the notion of acceptance, and I think a, a lot of ACT commitment therapy actually comes from Buddhist doctrine, it actually comes from early Christian doctrine too, for that matter, um, and one of the, the first noble truths of Buddhism, which I never really got until about last year when I actually thought about this and the concept of this type of therapy, is the notion that there is suffering, but you have to underline the is. I think the guys see a lot of suffering out there, and one of the things that they almost become compelled to do is they just want to keep going back to it. They want to keep going back to it because they want to fix it. And one of the issues that they really struggle with is the notion that um, they can back away from that. Maybe they can leave that to other people as opposed to stewing and ruminating about it and uh, perhaps redeploying or joining age agencies and keeping on re-traumatising themselves, which the fellows do. Um, you know, a particular group was... Um, the most recent one was a combination of police and military, and we see the same kind of mindset in the police, that you have a, a group of men, and, and also women, who are committed to making a difference. And sometimes you can't make a difference because there is suffering, but they won't accept that because it's not their nature to, to back away from it. We have to, uh, to get them to rest up a little bit on themselves. The notion of mindfulness of being able to create this state of mind where you can see things at a distance is something that's actually native to anybody who's ever oper operated a weapon and all soldiers operate weapons. It's the same kind of thing that is uh, done when you form a sight picture and you do what the military call tactical breathing because if you talk talked about it as relaxational therapy, probably the soldiers wouldn't like it very much. Um, so we call it tactical breathing. You form a sight picture and you induce a state of calm where nothing else uh, is 
experienced except is what's down the end of the site. And so basically with these uh, programs that we ran, we're building on an existing skill set, which is kind of useful. Now, the results we've seen from that, the last group, you know, I wasn't that happy with the results, but I must admit we, we picked a pretty hard group of patients. Um, but we have seen some pretty spectacular results uh, over time. I think it's a, a way forward. The data from much more coherent research studies than ours, uh, it does suggest it's a way forward. It's a package. It's part of a package of interventions. It's, it's not. This is not a condition like tuberculosis where one thing is going to fix it. There's a whole bunch of things you need to throw in. Fantastic. Um, look, Tim, uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to, to add? Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps you know, something that um, might help our, our listeners? Mm. I think with the just coming back to the SOPs for a moment, one thing that's really important to be aware of is, as Nick was just talking about, PTSD is a um, is a significant condition, but it's not the only psychological mm. condition from which an ADF member or a veteran can experience. So, um, if if a person can't fulfil the SOP for PTSD and there are other psychological conditions that have been diagnosed, it's very important that any claim that's put in with the DVA that they identify those other conditions, whether that's an adjustment disorder, major depression, um, whatever uh, arises. So that uh, being aware of that and, and getting advice on that, if necessary, uh, is just essential in terms of um, the prospect of a person's claim. And just a further comment about that, that report writing, um, doctors are notorious for disliking paperwork, and it's true, we do dislike paperwork. Um, however, if you're going to get involved in this space of treating what is in effect a compensable injury and treating veterans, you are going to have to do the paperwork. And, you know, the people that I know... Um, who work in this space, literally one has to suck it up and do the reports. And if you're going to do that, I think uh, the reports need to be written in a particular format. DVA maybe needs to change some of that. Um, there is a need for us to educate ourselves about the format uh, and to make things go as smoothly as possible. Absolutely. Just a, just a further comment on the uh, SOP for PTSD specifically, Nick. Um, if you are able to comment on this, does it surprise you that the stressors are as high as they are um, when you compare it with um, what you would consider necessary to diagnose PTSD in a civilian uh, world as opposed to a military world? So the SOP for PTSD talks about things like experiencing a life-threatening event, um, being threatened with a weapon, um, it goes on to talk about being subject to a serious physical assault, including rape or sexual molestation. So the criteria for the stressor is highly specific and um, it seems, uh, or it doesn't seem, I think it is uh, extremely high in terms of the events that need to have occurred. So comparing military world to civilian world and what's necessary to diagnose PTSD, do you think those aspects are higher than they need to be? 
Personally, I think not. Actually, I, I think it's reasonable to uh, to keep them at a pretty high threshold. Um, PTSD is an extreme form of a reaction to uh, any manner of, of, of traumatic event. Um, the brain will behave in a particular type of way. PTSD is the the real outlier. There, it's it's an extreme. It's it's not something that just pops up out of the blue. I think keeping that stress or criterion really high enables us to define what's going on. Um, I think it might be worth uh, throwing in some other ideas about the um, uh, experience of emotion at the time. But I, I do think the threshold is uh, is reasonably high. I, I think. Look, another aspect that really pops up with the guys that I, I and girls that I, I do want to mention is um, when you when you leave the military. Um, the uh, the TV series Band of Brothers talks about the notion of a band of brothers. The guys and girls do seem really connected to their peers, and they are very intense and very focused and very strong relationships. They're going to miss that. The military is also not just a job, it's a vocation, it's a profession, and people are going to miss that as well. And one of the elephants in the room that comes up is, but I, is that service overseas is exciting. It's dangerous, but it's exciting. Um, and I guess the an, a metaphor that I often use is, you know, people pay good money to be scared. Um, and this is a worthwhile job. It's exciting. It's dangerous. Yes, it's horrific. And there's a whole bunch of other negatives that go with it. But uh, the guys are, and girls are often missing uh, the military service as well. And that needs to be factored in. Is an element of that then that... Um when people you know, leave service and enter civilian life, there's often that sort of you know really hard crash back to earth, you know, and 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 perhaps there's not the infrastructures in place to sort of ease them back into things. That's a, that's a really great question. Um, absolutely, look that uh, that lack of group support, um, that grab of group validation and acknowledgement um, is something that the guys miss. Um, the civilian world conducts itself a little bit differently to how military people do things. Military people are trained to do things properly. One of the things that I've been really cheered to see is the rise of uh, groups like the Return Home Wellbeing Program. Um, I think we've talked about Barry Heffernan's group uh, at Glenelg, where groups can be built around shared activities and people can be brought in to start interacting. And, um, you know, I'm all for things that make my life less busy as a psychiatrist. And these things have actually been really quite helpful to a range of patients uh, and uh, I think letting the guys kind of organise themselves into the groups and the services that they see as beneficial is going to be a way to go. Now, some of those groups are going to falter and fail, but it's a bit like growing, growing a garden. Some of those groups are going to thrive and continue to provide a, a good service. These things are rising organically as useful. It's a good point because, after all, I mean, the current legislation that covers uh, military members and veterans is 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 MRCA, which is the military rehabilitation compensation act so the the focus on um rehabilitation is paramount in in the legislation and um accessing these groups or uh professionals vocational professionals as well is just essential uh for uh, military members that are leaving um the defense force and, and they have an entitlement to uh, receive funding uh, with the, those sorts of activities if they have accepted uh, military-caused injuries. 
You know, I, I'd really like to follow up on that point because um, what we're dealing with is a population that's been hand-picked to be fitter than the average and more intelligent than the average and probably got a few other quite useful characteristics, good at problem-solving, good at working in teams. Now, for us to lose those individuals as a society by um, uh, keeping them unemployed or putting them in pensions, that's a huge loss to them. It's also a huge loss to us. Um Employers picking these individuals up um, and letting them work and they, they're getting a good result out of that. It's good for the patients. It's good for the country. And trying to get uh, the, these men and women uh, back into functional roles is, I think, going to be really important. So that's something we need to see a much greater emphasis on, do you think? You know, actually, you know, making sure that you know, there's, yeah. a, there's a softer landing and, and a smooth transition into, into civilian yeah. life. And some of the guys do really well, but you know, I'd like to em- see employers adopt a notion of hire a vet. <laughs> Nick, um, before we go, is, uh, you know, it, for people listening today, um, you know, is, is there you know, any, uh, someone that you, know, you can recommend uh, that they reach out to um, if they think that they need help or perhaps you know, someone they know needs help? There's a bunch of services out there. Um, I'd be pleased to recommend um, Ramsey Healthcare. Um, the Director of Nursing, Carol Turnbull, has, with some assistance, formed a group of psychiatrists. Uh, and I was pleased to hear that I've, I asked eight of my most capable colleagues and not one of them uh, refused to be a part of it. They, they, they all just snapped at the opportunity to be involved with our first responders and our veterans. So Carol Turnbull, Ramsey Healthcare, the uh, phone number is 8269 8200-8269-8100. Uh, she has access to a suite of psychiatrists who are interested and committed and personally very, very competent. Excellent. Nick, thanks for your time today and you, Tim. Cheers, Michael. Um, So, everyone, thanks for listening today. If you found this podcast helpful or think it would help someone you know, please like and share it on social media. We are at TGB Lawyers on Twitter and Tyndall Gas Bentley Lawyers on Facebook. Uh, You can also visit our website at www.tgb.com.au. We have a whole heap of blogs um, and a lot of other info, most of it written by Tim, um, about military claims and defence welfare. Um, And of course, uh, you can call us on 08-8212-1077. We can help uh, anyone uh, around the country with their military claims. Uh, Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Law & Life, a podcast brought to you by TGB Lawyers. Make sure you subscribe to the show and for the latest podcast updates and news, visit tgb.com.au forward slash podcasts. TGB is a leading Australian law firm specialising in injury compensation, employment issues, family and divorce, wills and estates, criminal and traffic, business and property. To arrange an appointment, contact the TBG team or read blogs and content, visit tgb.com.au. Please be aware that discussions on this podcast are general in nature, true at the time of recording, and should not be considered legal advice. If you are facing a legal issue, seek advice from a lawyer specific to your circumstances.